Section 23 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12, Part 1. A chill, gray, somber dawn was breaking when Ellen dragged herself into the cabin and crept under her blankets, there to sleep the sleep of exhaustion. When she awoke, the hour appeared to be late afternoon. Sun and sky shone through the sunken and decayed roof of the old cabin. Her uncle, Tad Jorth, lay upon a blanket bed, upheld by a crude couch of boughs. The light fell upon his face, pale, lined, cast in a still mold of suffering. He was not dead, for she heard his respiration. The floor underneath Ellen's blankets was bare clay. She and Jorth were alone in this cabin. It contained nothing besides their beds and a rank growth of weeds along the decayed lower logs. Half of the cabin had a rude ceiling of rough-hewn boards, which formed a kind of loft. This attic extended through to the adjoining cabin, forming the ceiling of the porch-like space between the two structures. There was no partition. A ladder of two aspen saplings, pegged to the logs, and with braces between for steps, led up to the attic. Ellen smelled wood smoke and the odor of frying meat, and she heard the voices of men. She looked out to see that Slater and Somers had joined their party, an addition that might have strengthened it for defense, but did not lend to her own situation anything favorable. Somers had always appeared the one best to avoid. Coulter espied her, and called her to come and feed your pale face. His comrades laughed, not loudly but guardedly, as if noise was something to avoid. Nevertheless, they awoke Tad Jorth, who began to toss and moan on the bed. Ellen hurried to his side, and at once ascertained that he had a high fever and was in a critical condition. Every time he tossed, he opened a wound in his right breast rather high up. For all she could see, nothing had been done for him except the binding of a scarf round his neck and under his arm. This scant bandage had worked loose. Going to the door, she called out, "'Fetch me some water.' When Coulter brought it, Ellen was rummaging in her pack for some clothing or towel that she could use for bandages." "'Weren't any of you decent enough to look after my uncle?' she queried. "'Huh? Well, what the hell?' rejoined Coulter. "'We sure did all we could. "'I reckon you think it wasn't a tough job to pack him up the rim. "'He was done for then, and I said so.' "'I'll do all I can for him,' said Ellen. "'Sure, go ahead. "'When I get plugged or knifed by that half-breed, "'I sure hope you'll be round to nurse me.' "'You seem to be pretty sure of your fate, Coulter.' "'Sure as hell,' he bit out darkly. "'Summer saw Isbel and his gang trailing us to the Jorth Ranch. "'Are you going to stay here and wait for them?' "'Sure, I've been quarreling with the fellows out there over that very question. "'I'm for leaving the country, but Queen, the damn gunfighter, "'is dead set to kill that cowman, Blue, who swore he was King Fisher.' the old Texas outlaw. None but Queen are spoiling for another fight. All the same, 
They won't leave Tad Jorth here alone. Then Colter leaned in at the door and whispered, Ellen, I can't boss this outfit, so let's you and me shake em. I've got your dad's gold. Let's ride off tonight and shake this country. Colter, muttering under his breath, left the door and returned to his comrades. Ellen had received her first intimation of his cowardice, and his mention of her father's gold started a train of thought that persisted in spite of her efforts to put all her mind to attending her uncle. He grew conscious enough to realize her working over him, and thanked her with a look that touched Ellen deeply. It changed the direction of her mind. His suffering and imminent death, which she was able to alleviate and retard somewhat, worked upon her pity and compassion so that she forgot her own plight. Half the night she was tending him, cooling his fever, holding him quiet. Well, she realized that but for her ministrations he would have died. At length he went to sleep. And Ellen, sitting beside him in the lonely, silent darkness of that late hour, received again the intimation of nature, those vague and nameless stirrings of her innermost being, those whisperings out of the night and the forest and the sky. Something great would not let go of her soul. She pondered. Attention to the wounded man occupied Ellen, and soon she redoubled her activities in this regard, finding in them something of protection against Coulter. He had weighed later, as she went to the spring for water, with a lunge like that of a bear. He had tried to embrace her, but Ellen had been too quick. "'Well, are you going away with me?' he demanded. "'No, I'll stick by my uncle,' she replied. That motive of hers seemed to obstruct his will. Ellen was keen to see that Coulter and his comrades were at a last stand and disintegrating under a severe strain. Nerve and courage of the open and the wild they possessed, but only in a limited degree. Coulter seemed obsessed by his passion for her, and though Ellen in her stubborn pride did not yet fear him, she realized she ought to. After that incident, she watched closely, never leaving her uncle's bedside, except when Coulter was absent. One or more of the men kept constant lookout somewhere down the canyon. Day after day passed on the wings of suspense, of watching, of ministering to her uncle, of waiting for some hour that seemed fixed. Coulter was like a hound upon her trail. At every turn he was there to importune her, to run off with him, to frighten her with the menace of the Isbels, to beg her to give herself to him. It came to pass that the only relief she had was when she ate with the men or barred the cabin door at night. Not much relief, however, was there in the shut and barred door. With one thrust of his powerful arm, Coulter could have caved it in. He knew this as well as Ellen. Still she did not have the fear she should have had. There was her rifle beside her, and though she did not allow her mind to run darkly on its possible use, still the fact of it being there at hand somehow strengthened her. Coulter was a cat playing with a mouse, but not yet sure of his quarry. Ellen came to know hours when she was weak, 
weak physically, mentally, spiritually, morally, when, under the sheer weight of this frightful and growing burden of suspense, she was not capable of fighting her misery, her abasement, her low ebb of vitality, and at the same time wholly withstanding Coulter's advances. He would come into the cabin, and utterly indifferent to Tad Jorth, he would try to make bold and unrestrained love to Ellen. When he caught her in one of her unresisting moments, and was able to hold her in his arms and kiss her, he seemed to be beside himself with the wonder of her. At such moments, if he had any softness or gentleness in him, they expressed themselves in a sooner or later letting her go, when apparently she was about to faint. So it must have become fascinatingly fixed in Coulter's mind that at times Ellen repulsed him with scorn and at others could not resist him. Ellen had escaped two crises in her relation with this man, and as a morbid doubt, like a poisonous fungus, began to strangle her mind. She instinctively divined that there was an approaching and final crisis. No uplift of her spirit came this time, no intimations, no whisperings. How horrible it all was. Too long to be good and noble, to realize that she was neither, to sink lower day by day. Must she decay like one of these rotting logs? Worst of all, then, was the insinuating and ever-growing hopelessness. What was the use? What did it matter? Who would ever think of Ellen Jorth? Oh, God, she whispered in her distraction, is nothing left, nothing at all? A period of several days of less torment to Ellen followed. Her uncle apparently took a turn for the better, and Coulter let her alone. This last circumstance nonplussed Ellen. She was at a loss to understand it, unless the Isbel menace now encroached upon Coulter so formidably that he had forgotten her for the present. Then one bright August morning, when she had begun to relax her eternal vigilance and breathe without oppression, Coulter encountered her, darkly silent and fierce. He grasped her and drew her off her feet. Ellen struggled violently, but the total surprise had deprived her of strength, and that paralyzing weakness assailed her as never before. Without apparent effort, Coulter carried her, striding rapidly away from the cabins, into the border of spruce trees at the foot of the canyon wall. Coulter, where, oh, where are you taking me? She found voice to cry out. By God, I don't know, he replied, with strong, vibrant passion. I was a fool not to carry you off long ago, but I waited. I was hoping you'd love me. And now that Isabel gang has corralled us. Summers has seen the half-breed up on the rocks, and Springer's seen the rest of them sneaking around. I run back after my horse and you. But Uncle Tad, we mustn't leave him alone, cried Ellen. We've got to, replied Coulter grimly. Tad sure won't worry you no more, soon as John Isbel gets to him. Oh, let me stay, implored Ellen. I will save him. Coulter laughed at the utter absurdity of her appeal and claim. Suddenly, he set her down upon her feet. Stand still, he ordered. Ellen saw his big bay horse saddled with pack and blanket, tied there in the shade of a spruce. 
With swift hands, Colter untied him and mounted him, scarcely moving his piercing gaze from Ellen. He reached to grasp her. Up with you. Put your foot in the stirrup. His will, like his powerful arm, was irresistible for Ellen at that moment. She found herself swung up behind him. Then the horse plunged away. What with the hard motion and Coulter's iron grasp on her, Ellen was in a painful position. Her knees and feet came into violent contact with branches and snags. He galloped the horse, tearing through the dense thicket of willows that served to hide the entrance to the side canyon, and when out in the larger and more open canyon, he urged him to a run. Presently, when Coulter put the horse to a slow rise of ground, thereby bringing him to a walk, it was just in time to save Ellen a serious bruising. Again the sunlight appeared to shade over. They were in the pines. Suddenly, with backward lunge, Coulter halted the horse. Ellen heard a yell. She recognized Queen's voice. Turn back, Coulter, turn back. With an oath, Coulter wheeled his mount. If I didn't run plumb into them, he ejaculated harshly, and scarcely had the goaded horse gotten a start when a shot rang out. Ellen felt a violent shock, as if her momentum had suddenly met with a check, and then she felt herself wrenched from Coulter, from the saddle, and propelled into the air. She alighted on soft ground and thick grass, and was unhurt save for the violent wrench and shaking that had rendered her breathless. Before she could rise, Coulter was pulling at her, lifting her to her feet. She saw the horse lying with bloody head. Tall pines loomed all around. Another rifle cracked. Run, his Coulter, and he bounded off, dragging her by the hand. Another yell pealed out. Here we are, Coulter. Again it was Queen's shrill voice. Ellen ran with all her might, her heart in her throat, and her sight failing to record more than a blur of passing pines and a blank green wall of spruce. Then she lost her balance, was falling, yet she could not fall because of that steel grip on her hand, and was dragged and finally carried into a dense shade. She was blinded. The trees whirled and faded. Voices and shots sounded far away. Then something black seemed to be wiped across her feeling. It turned to gray, to moving blankness, to dim, hazy objects, spectral and tall, like blanketed trees. And when Ellen fully recovered consciousness, she was being carried through the forest. "'Well, little one, that was a close shave for you,' said Coulter's hard voice, growing clearer. "'Reckon your keeling over was natural enough.' He held her lightly in both arms, her head resting above his left elbow. Ellen saw his face as a gray blur, then taking sharper outline, until it stood out distinctly, pale and clammy, with eyes cold and wonderful in their intense flare. As she gazed upward, Coulter turned his head to look back through the woods, and his motion betrayed a keen, wild vigilance. The veins of his lean brown neck stood out like whipcords. Two comrades were stalking beside him. Ellen heard their stealthy steps, and she felt Coulter sheer from one side to the other. They were proceeding cautiously, fearful of the rear, 
but not wholly trusting to the fore. "'Reckon we'd better go slow and look before we leap,' said one whose voice Ellen recognized as Springer's. "'Sure that open slope ain't to my liking, with our Ness Pierce friend prowling round,' drawled Coulter, as he set Ellen down on her feet. Another of the rustlers laughed. "'Say, can't he twinkle through the forest? I had four shots at him. Harder to hit than a turkey running crossways.' This facetious speaker was the evil-visaged, sardonic Somers. He carried two rifles and wore two belts of cartridges. "'Ellen, sure you ain't so dead white as you was,' observed Coulter, and he chucked her under the chin with familiar hand. "'Sit down here. I don't want you stopping any bullets, and there's no telling.' Ellen was glad to comply with his wish. She had begun to recover wits and strength, yet she still felt shaky. She observed that their position, then, was on the edge of a well-wooded slope from which she could see the grassy canyon floor below. They were on a level bench projecting out from the main canyon wall that loomed gray and rugged and pine-fringed. Summers and Coulter and Springer gave careful attention to all points of the compass, especially in the direction from which they had come. They evidently anticipated being trailed or circled or headed off, but did not manifest much concern. Summers lit a cigarette. Springer wiped his face with a grimy hand and counted the shells in his belt, which appeared to be half empty. Coulter stretched his long neck like a vulture and peered down the slope and through the aisles of the forest up toward the canyon rim. End of chapter 12 Part 1